So last week, if you're with us, and even if you weren't, by way of quick review, we, we started this brand new series that, frankly, I guess is, it's, it's a money series. And I think about Wednesday this week when the reality of the way things were changing became so clear. I, I had spent some pretty considerable energy and time just thinking and conversations with different friends and family about, do we need to pivot? Do we need to do something that's more befitting of these particular times and situations? But the more I thought about it and the more I considered it, the more I, I think I realized, like, no, actually, th- this, is, this is exactly where we're at. I, I think there's some grace in what we're going to talk about this morning, and not because this is a series about, you know, narrate is having some kind of financial crisis or there's a capital campaign, but because this is ultimately a, security, uh, uh, a series about how, how we think about money and, and what opportunities and responsibilities uh, come with that. So last week, if you were with us, you may remember this kind of awkward moment where I asked this question of, have you felt any financial pressure in in the last, I think we said, since 2020 started? And that pressure could come from anything from the realization that you're about to graduate high school and the cost of a pair of Levi's is becoming clear, or you're about to get out of college and suddenly you've got student loans to pay, or you've got this remarkable business opportunity and you're wondering whether or not to take it. It it could come from the fact that you're 13 and you really want an iPhone X, but you don't have a job, or it could come from the fact that you're 60 and you just got your, your latest health insurance rates. But we wanted to ask this question of, or I did ask this question of, do you feel or have you felt financial pressure? And then I had you raise your hands. I'm not going to ask you to awkwardly raise them in your living room. But what happened last week was the majority of the room did. And then I, I asked, like, will you look around? And I even did this fake thing where I, I had a whiteboard up here and I thought about doing it actually, but I didn't. And I'm told that that was good. But just to kind of point out like, hey, here's this person and they're this age and they make this much money. And here's this person and she's a single mom and she makes this much money. Because the point of that exercise and looking around was to, to just name the fact that irrespective of how much money you make, there's pressure. And, and that can be offensive. I, I get that. If, for, for people in, in, in certain situations in life who haven't had certain opportunities, I mean, there's landmines everywhere on this conversation. But I wonder if we do well to, to name, yeah, there's some social injustice on topics like this. But there's also the reality that no matter how much money you make or don't make, there's pressure that comes with that. And therefore, the conversation can stem into other important things. But I think about all that, and I was going to start this week by doing something similar, but now it seems absurd because I dare say that if I asked you, or I guess I am asking you, have you felt financial pressure in the last four days? I would guess that the answer for all of us is yes, because part of what this whole coronavirus thing is, one of the buttons it's pushing is is the financial button, whether that's because you're an hourly employee in the service industry and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills or that's because you own a business and and you're not sure how you're going to like make business work or whatever that looks like. This is in many ways, this is a conversation about security and retirement accounts and how am I going to pay my mortgage or my rent or buy groceries next month? And where's the toilet paper? Like it's, it's this complicated conversation. So we're going to stay the course you know, I want to acknowledge first, I'm indebted to Andy Stanley this morning. Andy's this great leader in, in Georgia who did some work about 10 years ago that became published in a book called How to Be Rich. And when I ask my friends who were who in churches like this, hey, what's the best stuff out there on money? Because I'm a professional plagiarist. They, they're like, it's how to be rich. It's how to be rich. And, and I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm indebted to Andy for these next couple weeks. But I want to start with a story, a, a story based in 
1866 and, and dealing with a, a woman who is known as Miss A in the medical journals in the years that followed. Miss A was in her late teens, early 20s, and her, her parents were taking her to a particular clinic to see a particular doctor, uh, fully convinced that they were taking her there to die. She had received a lot of medical treatment from a lot of places, and nobody was able to figure anything out. And she had all the appearances of someone who was in the final stages of life. Uh, her, her, her cheeks were sunken. They say her skin looked like cheesecloth draped across a skeleton. Her, her heart rate was at about 45. Her, her motor skills were rapidly deteriorating. Again, something becoming of someone in the final stages of life. And in addition to all that, uh, they, they, just, they couldn't figure it out. Her, her parents suspected some kind of blood disease like tuberculosis, but, but nobody could name that. And what was making it particularly confounding was, was the fact that on top of all of that, there were other signs that told an opposite story. Her, her appetite was fine. Her urine showed no evidence of, of anything. I mean, there, there were aspects to her person. Her other organs, other than her heart, were, were still functioning. And so they were taking her, who I'm told looked more like a corpse at this time than a human being, to this clinic to see a particular person, but they had very little hope. They were convinced she was there to die. Now, who they were taking her to see was a guy named Sir William Gull. He was and now is a famous doctor in, in Britain in the 1860s. And he was famous for a couple reasons. One, of course, was that he, he had solved a lot of medical mysteries that nobody else had been able to solve. Remember, in the 1860s, modern medicine didn't involve CT scans or MRIs. It still involved things like turpentine enemas. That sounds fun. Opium injections electric shock, bloodletting, like those were all mainstream medicine practices. But Sir William Gull, or Dr. Gull, he, he, he was taking a different approach and because of that was becoming famous both in a teaching sense and in a practicing sense. He believed that, that we don't treat diseases, we treat people. He believed that, that medical people would, would do better to do nothing and observe than do something so they could say they tried Something. He had this abiding passion that we should listen and observe and pay attention to what's going on before we act as, as doctors. I don't know why I'm saying we because I'm certainly not a doctor. There's one rather famous story where a woman came to his, his clinic. She was covered in sores. She was completely convinced she was on her deathbed. And so he, he, he lanced one of the sores off of her body, put it under a microscope, brought her to the microscope or probably the microscope to her, had her look at the sore and then said to her, you're going to recover. And that's the only medical practice he offered her, and she did, in fact, recover. In fact, this quote directly from him, I think, captures the, the ethos of the way this doctor practiced. He, he would say to his students, acquaint yourself with the causes that have led up to the disease. Don't guess at them, but know them through and through if you can. And if you do not know them, know that you do not, and still inquire. So Miss A, she was brought to his practice, and there she stayed for two years. And slowly but surely, over the course of two years, her health improved, her heart rate improved, her appearance improved. And at the end of two years, she left the clinic, a fully functioning, healthy person. And as she left, he was able to give a title to what was a new emerging disease in his day. 
A disease that today affects 8 million Americans alone. A disease that I have friends who have battled this disease. It's a very difficult disease to battle. The disease? Anorexia nervosa. And he was among the first to say that what anorexia involves is the, the brain attacking the body. He said that what goes on with anorexia is a person becomes so focused on getting skinny that they miss the point at which they've become skinny. Now, many medical historians would say this disease was a particular result of the industrial age. Industrial age that brought a new attention to fashion and the ideal female body type and magazines and person-to-person comparison. An age that, that gave people the luxury of not just focusing on survival, but appearance and popularity and fame, even if you weren't a, a king or a queen. This, this was further driven by something called the corset. I feel odd as a male talking about the corset, but I can read stuff. The corset, of course, was this device that women were using uh, very popularly, very commonly, rather, in this era. It was a device that women applied to their waist because the ideal body type in this era, it wasn't skinny, it was thin-waisted. And so women would apply this thing to their waist and slowly, over months, apply more and more pressure to their waist, very commonly achieving a waist of 20 inches. Uh, They say that waists of 16 and 18 inches weren't, actually as uncommon as you might think. Now, there were side effects, uh, not the least of which was that uh, women, they, they could only breathe out of the top half of their lung. The bottom half was, would fill with liquid, and they say that one of the ways that you could identify women who were wearing the corset, which was quite popular, was they had this hor- horrible cough because of the liquid in their lungs. See, what, what, what some suggest is that what was going on is there was so much attention on the ideal waste that, that patients like Miss A got sucked into an unhealthy mindset. A mindset, again, that's so focused on getting skinny that we miss the point at which we've become skinny. But I wonder, excuse me, I wonder if, if we couldn't identify other diseases that are also the result of this industrial age. I wonder if one of those might center around the topic of money and wealth. That just like we can miss the point where we crossed over the line of becoming skinny, I wonder if, if we can miss the point where we crossed over the line of being rich. I, w- I was walking with my boys to the health food store uh, this, sometime this winter. It was one of those winter days where you just had to get out of the house and do something. And we were walking to Real Foods to fill a growler with kombucha. And, and as I recall, we were right by the middle school and the boys, they, they must have been watching something on TikTok or something before we left because they were, they were talking about rich people and the stuff rich people drive and stuff rich people wear. And it's a little bit of a trigger for me because, frankly, I, I have a little bit of a response to a negative projection of rich people. And I, I stopped them and I said, you know, do you realize that, that not all rich people, in fact, I would dare say most rich people don't look like and live the way they're portrayed on TV. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I I get it. Like, on your screen, they drive glitzy cars and live in glitzy houses and do all this fancy stuff. But, like, we're we're surrounded by rich people who who don't necessarily live that way. And then I said, and I'm actually picking on my dad here, I said, like, think of Grandpa Steve. And they looked at me and I said, well, Grandpa Steve is... 
by all accounts, rich. And, they're, and, and, I, and I knew this one would, would land with them because I, I knew that they don't think of him as someone who wears fancy clothes or drives fancy cars. But I said, listen, he, he's retired from the railroad. He's worked really hard. He has several, he, 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 they have several rental properties at this point. I said, he's, he's rich. Now, n- never mind that we have this joke that it's not uncommon to see him wearing shoes when we go visit him that I threw away when I was in high school. Never mind that he's, he's thrifty in many ways, but he's rich. And I think I had their attention, but I probably should have kept going. I probably should have said, you know who else is rich? Like your mom and I, we're, we're, we are rich. I mean, you're not, you just live in our house, but, but we're, we're rich. And I'm sure they would have looked at me like, what? And, I, and there would have been this opportunity to make several points. You know, like, like we work four or five days a week and yet we secure food and shelter and medical care for seven days a week. That there's, there's five of us in our house, only two and sometimes three, one of them starting to work, but there, there, there's three out of the five of us who work and yet we all survive. We, we work 30, 40, 50 hour weeks, but we have 50 hours a week worth of leisure. Like on every level, we're, we're among the most affluent people who, who have ever lived. I mean, we, we, if we make $40,000 a year by, by current statistics, we're among the top 4% of income earners. Like, I wonder if I'd have done well to just convey to the boys, like, we are, by almost any standard of measurement, rich. I read something this week that really messed with me, and it was this, that the distance between my life and Bill Gates is actually less than the distance between my life and the average person living outside the U.S. Gallup did a poll years ago where they asked people who make $30,000 a year, how much money would you have to make to feel rich? And they said 60. And then they asked people who make $50,000 a year, how much money would you have to make to feel rich? And they said 100. And then they asked people who make $100,000 a year, how much money do you have to make to feel rich? And they said 200 which means the answer to the question of how much money do you need to feel rich is what? It's more. It's, it's always more. Money Magazine picked that idea up and they asked actual millionaires, how much money do you have to have to be rich? And their answer was $5 million in liquid assets to be rich. But all of this comes back to this point of what, 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 if, what if you and I, what if by almost any metric, what, what if we're rich? Now, my point there would not be guilt. And I, and I understand that oftentimes on topics like this, it, it feels like we're driving for guilt. But that, I, I don't think that's what Jesus drives for. I, I don't think that's what Paul, I don't think that's what the Bible drives for. I wonder if what it's driving for is responsibility, generosity. I mean, sure, we can pick and choose a little bit. Jesus had his story about the rich young ruler, go sell everything. But, but we also know, thanks to the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus had affluent people who supported his ministry we know from Paul's letters that, that, that he didn't demonize wealth. He, he made it an opportunity, a responsibility. In fact, in, in one of Paul's letters to Timothy, and if you're not familiar with the layout of the New Testament, of course, Jesus' life and death and resurrection changed the world. It, it convinced many people that, that this Jewish Messiah wasn't just the Jewish king, but he was the king of all people. And so Paul Paul took this message, though it took a while for him to get there. He took this message to the Roman world and and make no mistake about it. Part of what he was communicating is Caesar is not king. Jesus is king. And that started these movements, not unlike the one perhaps you're a part of right now in your house. These little groups of people who started following Jesus 
together. And that, that occasion, that, that required Paul to start writing letters to, to supplement their, their learning. And one of those letters is a letter that we call 1 Timothy. Letters were a common communica- communication device in this day. And listen to what Paul said to Timothy. He says, as for those who in the present age are rich. Now maybe we can just stop there. Uh, because what Paul's not doing is condemning them. But what he is doing is naming it. I mean, if we said, hey, only tune into the live feed next week if you're rich, probably all of us would go like, mm, I guess I'll go skiing. He, he's speaking very directly to rich people. Why? Because he sees it as opportunity. And sure, wealth wasn't as widespread in that day in, in terms of the, the way we think about all of us being rich. But listen to what he said next. As for those in the present age who are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What is, what is Paul doing? And this is where I think we're right in the middle of coronavirus and toilet paper and will I have a job next week and all of, all of the, the angst that this is bringing to the surface and not all of it even unfounded, except for maybe the toilet pe- paper part. What's Paul doing there? He's, isn't he graciously like Jesus would if Paul were Jesus? Isn't he, he, he's challenging rich people to go, wait, wait, wait a minute. You better be careful because if, if you're not, your sense of hope, your sense of security will come from your wealth. Isn't that part of what's being drawn to the surface right now? Does, does my sense of security come from my Dave Ramsey emergency fund? And listen, I'm, I'm glad I have it. But it also exposes, or does it come from, from God? Who, who's really king? Paul, Paul is warning them, be careful. Because wealth can make you feel self-sufficient. Wealth, wealth can make you think that all you need is yourself. Wealth can lead you away from the story of Genesis where we're told from the very beginning we are, we are transcendent beings dependent upon things that we can't bring for ourselves. I had a friend just say to me yesterday on the phone, times like this remind us that, that humans aren't in charge. That there's more going on than that. And so Paul, Paul's saying, listen, don't put your security in this stuff. Do you know anybody who's good at being rich? Of course you do, especially if you're part of this place. That was the point. I don't know that I did it very well, but we were trying to make last week. Was this place, this, the, the, the legacy of this community called Narrate, it, it happens because of people, many of you among them, who are good at being rich. And please don't hear me say, therefore we have a lot of six-figure income earners. That's not the point. Pe- people who are, are wealthy by our own cultural standards, by, by, by everything we've talked about, that's why we exist. People who are good at being rich. But here's the trick. What if being good at being rich isn't an intuitive skill? What if it's learned? What if we have to become good at being rich? And that's where I think that the anorexia parallel can be helpful. Because if that's true, what that would mean is if we just stay focused on getting rich, then we never look up and realize we are, which means we never take responsibility and lean into the opportunity that comes with that. What if being good at being rich involves skill? And I think that's what Paul does here in the second half. First, he says, don't don't put your security in this stuff, but then watch this. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready 
to share. He, he, he's saying you, you got to do stuff. You know, my own struggle with anxiety is well documented. And, and here's one of the things that drives me crazy about anxiety. Listen, I, I, I love to learn about things that make me anxious. I love to think about and read and talk to therapists about and have conversations with friends. I, I, I love to focus on learning about anxiety because the more I learn, the more I'm convinced that I can think my way through the problem. And the reality is, I, I think the thinking part is important. But in truth, I can't just intellectually solve my anxiety problem. There's something else to it. And that something else is, I've got to be willing to do stuff that gives me anxiety. I've got to create muscle memory. I've got to, I've got to walk into it. And I wonder if that's what Paul is saying to us. And I wonder if now is not a perfect time to be reminded that that, that value of being generous, it's, it's really not a value until it costs you something. That being good at being rich involves muscle memory. D- Dallas Willard has this, this thing called the Golden Triangle, and I, I created my own online. I couldn't find a good one, so the graphics are poor, but here you have it. This was Dallas Willard's, like, how does a person become like Christ? What, what does discipleship or the cruciform life look like? And and you can see at the top is the Holy Spirit. And that's Dallas Willard's way of acknowledging that, that being a Christian involves something that, that comes from outside of you. That I love the way he says, Christ followers burn grace like a 747 burns fuel at takeoff. That, that we, we need God to be formed. But then notice, and I, I think this is, again, fitting to where we're at. One of his other pieces of the triangle are, are trials and temptations in everyday life that we can either see moments that are inconvenient and less than ideal as the enemy, or we can see them as opportunity that James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because, because God wants to build in us perseverance. And I don't like to have it built into me, but, but this is the way we get formed. You know, I got an email from a friend yesterday that was reminding me that, you know, Christianity became a, a major influence in the Roman Empire precisely because of a moment just like the one we're in with Corona. As the plague was killing people throughout the Roman Empire, Christians, Christians didn't run away from it. They brought those people into their house. They, they, they saw the, the opportunity to actually live into what it means to be a generous person. Now, Ann and I were just talking about that. That's really fun to talk about. In moments like this, it's really difficult to imagine doing. And then the other side of Paul's triangle is is this idea of spiritual disciplines, practices, things that we do to form and and shape ourself. So listen, what what if? What if we were to embrace what we're going through? Not not with some kind of naive happiness, but, but from a sense of, okay, God, Tommy's represented this to the staff all week. This is going to give us unique opportunities to be the kingdom in our community. We can talk about being rich all we want. Here we have these opportunities. What, what would happen if we were to, to reach out to the God who hears cries? The God of the, the marginalized and the oppressed. What, what if we were to reawaken that idea of organic kingdom bringing? What does it look like to be good at being rich in this particular moment? What are the practices? I think another way to ask, ask yourself this is, what are the practices in your life, the, the, the disciplines that, that would indicate that, 
that you're taking seriously the reality that as a 21st century American, you're rich. And with that comes great opportunity. So here's going to be my prayer for, for us as we move into this very unique season. God, we're rich. And God, what does it look like for us to steward this moment, this time, these opportunities? I'd like to pray for you. God, uh, there, there's a lot of emotion going on right now in our community, in our state, in our country, in our world. And I suppose some of that is, is mapped around human personality and just the different ways that we respond to different things. But Lord, my prayer for us as a community would be that you'd, you'd help us learn everything you have for us in this season. That, that you'd make us creative and brave. That you'd help us differentiate what is an opportunity from you and what is just an opportunity God, as we think of things like toilet paper, I, I pray that you'd help us not just think about ourselves, but what it means to, to love a neighbor and what it means to be a generous person. Lord, the reality is that we don't, we don't know. And God, if, if what comes from this is a strengthened sense of security and connection with you, then I suppose the appropriate thing would be to welcome it. Pray also for people in our community and in Helena at large who are particularly vulnerable to this because of their health. God, pray that your hand of protection would be over them. And then pray for our, our hospital and our doctors and nurses and our, our leaders like Governor Bullock, that you would give them uh, supernatural wisdom, discernment, leadership, uh, that they wouldn't be haunted by the what-ifs and could-ofs, but that they would just Lead courageously. We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.